0: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. I am one of your hosts, Sarah Bramao Ramos. I just had the real pleasure of talking with Elizabeth Cole about her new book, Railroads and the Transformation of China, which came out in 2019 with Harvard University Press. Now, this is, as you might be able to tell from the title, a book about railroads in China. It starts with the construction of railroads under semi-colonial conditions in the Qing, and it ends with mention of the recent One Belt, One Road initiative. It covers the transfer of railroad knowledge from European powers, the destruction of railroads during wartime, the militarization of railroads in the early PRC, and the changes that came during the Great Leap Forward, the Cultural Revolution, and beyond. So it is certainly and wonderfully ambitious in scope. It draws on archival materials produced by railroad companies, sources from Western newspapers, personal diaries, travel literature, advertising materials, oral testimonies, and much, much more. So it is both rich and comprehensive. This is a book that looks at the transformation of China from empire to the PRC and explains in a historically anchored and institutionally grounded way how Chinese railroads grew to be what they are today centralized, yet with a surprising degree of regional autonomy. And this is also a book filled with absolutely fascinating moments from the absurdities of accounting systems and multiple accounting systems during semi-colonial conditions, um, to a look at how trains operate when they are run by red engineers, not very well as it turns out. And yet for all that it covers, this is also a tightly focused book, in large part because Elizabeth approaches the railroad throughout this work as an institution, which really brings the book together as a cohesive whole. It is also wonderfully clear and succinctly written. And if any of this piques your interest, I encourage you to seek out the book because we really only scratch the very surface of all the examples, moments, and arguments in this intensely rich and detailed work. So with that, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Elizabeth that follows. I'm here today with Elizabeth Cole to talk about her new book, Railroads and the Transformation of China. Welcome to the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast, Elizabeth, and thank you so much for taking the time out of your summer to talk today.
1: Thanks very much, Sarah. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Great. So let's begin with the traditional question of the podcast. Could you say a little bit about your own background, your own origin story, uh, if you like? What brought you to the study of Chinese history? And specifically, what made you decide to write a history of railroads in China?
1: Yeah, so I started to study uh, Chinese history a long time ago. Uh, I was an undergraduate in the mid 1980s. Um, And at that time, I was just fascinated by, on the one hand, seeing this country coming out of um, the Mao period, um, all the economic reforms that were beginning uh, to change the economy and society. And so I think while I wanted to continue be a historian, I increasingly became interested in the history of the economic institutions, the market, business institutions, entrepreneurs, and um, that sort of then led me to, you know, pursue um, a PhD. And um, while I've uh, worked in the field of business and socioeconomic history, uh, for a long time, industrialization, textile industry and industrialization, I've always had an interest in business institutions. And I think um, the interest in railroads came um, from several experiences. On the one hand, I always thought that um, as an institution, the railroad in China was and is quite impressive it is so large in terms of the uh, physical expansion the workforce the enormous logistical challenges and at the same time I was also f- you know puzzled by the fact that um, nobody has written a sort of comprehensive history of um, railroads in china and so um, that was basically the motivation to get involved in this project, which uh, um, took a long time and uh, uh, was quite difficult because I was trying to um, cover a lot of ground. Um, But here we are. And so that was that was the, you know, the origin of this project.
0: Great, yeah, and you you just mentioned that this book covers a lot of ground, and indeed it does. So, uh, railroads and the transformation of China looks at the development of railroads in China from the late nineteenth century to the post Mao reform period, and it is, as you've just pointed out, the first comprehensive history in any language of railroad operation during this period. And the book itself, you know, it moves chronologically, and this allows you to chart how railroads grew and changed as, of course, China is growing and shrinking and changing, uh, meaning that your focus on the railroads provides, in the words of the book, a lens through which to view the transformation of Chinese society and economy in the transition from empire to the People's Republic of China. Uh, But even though you're covering an incredible span of time in this book, and it is, for the most part, a very turbulent period of time, uh, this book has a really robust anchor, not just because it's all about railroads, um, but because you have a unified approach in how you're looking at railroads. So here you approach railroads as institutions. So could you explain for listeners, particularly for listeners who are not business historians, uh, what this approach means and you know why you chose it, why view railroads in this way?
1: So um, of course there are multiple historical approaches to writing about. Railroads. So I should say that, um, first of all, I did not want to write a train spotter book. That was very important. Um, uh, Second, the question is do you write a cultural history, a social history, um, a purely economic history of railroads? And believe me, um, I dabbled in a number of um, approaches when I Uh, began this project because um, there are so many interesting aspects. I wanted, yes, I wanted to write a a book that used the uh, railroad as a lens on Chinese history, but you can do that in so many ways. And if you want to discuss um, the people who travel on it... um, who work on the railroad, um, the, the goods, the information um, that is being transported by railroads, you could go in so many ways. And of course, I looked around uh, in, in terms of comparable um, uh, studies or role models for how to write a railroad history. And so there are books like the the railroad in the Victorian imagination, which is a fantastic cultural history um, of uh, the British rail system, or there is uh, um, the Wolfgang Schivelbusch's uh, sociological analysis and cultural analysis um, of train travel, etc. And there are these very informative economic his, um uh, uh, economic histories of railroads in the U.S. and Europe that really um, very uh, succinctly analyze what railroads contributed or not to the growth of a particular industry or economy, and so um, and of course you get a lot of good advice from from different people who all want you to write their history and. After walking down a couple of dead-end alleys, I actually then had this idea that I need to write this as an institution. And here I mean the railroad as a physical institution in terms of railroad compounds, ministry, the bureaucratic apparatus, Um, the railroad as the transportation Uh, uh, linkages, um, but also the railroad as a management institution with um, uh, directors, with railroad bureaus, with um, uh, people at various levels from the station master all the way down to the ticket collector. And the one um, unit or the one perspective where you can address these issue is the institution. And the longer I worked on the topic, that also made sense. If you look at the railroad, let's say, in the early 20th century, and in the earth er, and in the early 21st century, the railroad as an institution has survived. We still have railroad bureaus. We still have. Um, a, a, Well, I have to say the Ministry of Railroads was just um, abolished in 2013, but there are substitute um, uh, uh, institutions that take on these functions. But otherwise, um, as an institution, the railroad, I think, has really survived all these transitions from empire to republic, through the war, to the PRC, and into the economic reforms with surprising resilience. And so then that made sense for me to take it as a point of the departure, how people live, work um, in the institution of the railroad, and how the institution moves people, goods, and ideas.
0: Great. And I mean, as one reader, I thought it worked really well as, again, an anchor, you know, something solid um, to keep, you know, to hold everything together because you do cover so much. Um, But just picking on something that you you touched on there, the idea that the railroad as an institution has, you know, has survived, um, even as, and as your book does, um, you know, cross-perceived markers. So it crosses over the fall of the Qing and the transition to a socialist nation state, and yet the railroad stays. Um, and you you continually return in the book to the idea of continuity, right? That things are changing elsewhere and they have different names, but a surprising amount is staying the same. And something that you touch on in particular that stays the same is the regional autonomy of railroads, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, and I'm sure we're, we're going to return to this, but if you could just speak a little bit about here, um, the continued persistence of regional autonomy throughout the period as you discuss it in the book. So what's going on there? And maybe for listeners who aren't so familiar with the field, why is this sort of significant? How does this reshape how we you know think about the Republican period or later periods? Mm-hmm.
1: So um Regional autonomy is um, an interesting uh, aspect because a lot of the discussion about modern Chinese history, especially Lei Qing, the Republic, um, all the way up to the revolution, is how fragmented was China? Did we see... um, a real centralization under the Guomindang during the Republican period, did uh, China as a nation state, which it became in 1911, as the, the Republic of China, did it become more centralized? And what happened um, to the autonomy or the, um, the political power of regions, provinces, Um, etc. And so uh, railroads, if you look across history, whether it's the US, the uh, European countries, Japan or India, um, very often have been discussed as uh, tools and vehicles to promote industrialization and the uh, creation of the modern nation state, sort of helping to um, get the nation state uh, on track, forgive me for that pun. Um, there there are sense. so many. <laughs> it, it was
0: just there.
1: <laughs> it was just there, um, and to help uh, setting, you know, setting up uh, bureaucratic structures, um, facilitating mobilities for education, etc., etc., and of course. This works for a certain country, but um, for China, it is not. A, you know, it's not a straightforward story, and so here is where I want to come back to um, the regional autonomy. So, when railroads started out in the last decades in China, in the last decades of the nineteenth and early uh, centuries, uh, just around uh, 1900, 1910, we do see a very small and quite fragmented line network because the first companies were basically Sino-foreign syndicates where um, foreign capital financed joint ventures of the Chinese government and um, national consortia of Germany, Britain... Uh, uh, Belgium, Japan, et cetera, et cetera, that would build those railroads. And all these railroads, they were still very small in terms of track expansion. Um, There was very little connectivity um, at the time. Um, It was all focused in the Eastern Corridor of uh, China. And of course, all these consortia had... um, their own characteristics. So um, you would have uh, German um, technical and engineering um, uh, employees on the German-British uh, Jimpu Railroad and you would have French engineers and Belgian engineers on the French-speaking consortia's uh, project. And so uh, this came um th- this this the way the system um ev- evolved it was small not very well connected it had um technical and linguistic characteristics and so by the time 1911 the uh the revolution comes around and after that the new chinese republican nation state it really takes a while to create a central administration, to bring all this together um, under a central administration. And as I argue in the book, it really didn't work until sort of after uh, uh, 1927-28 during the Guomendang period. So what that means is, on the one hand, you could say, well, it's um, you know, it's it's sort of it took a long time. It, the the political situation with warlords and factionalism, it was so chaotic they couldn't sort it out. But on the other hand, it also meant that it gave autonomy and um, quite a bit of decision making to these um, railroad lines who were now. National railroad lines, but who at the uh, but which at the same time still had um, quite a bit of impact and influence from foreign uh, engineers and uh, from the structure how they had been sub- set up earlier on, and in many ways um, the se- central government at that time was quite happy. Because the government didn't have the manpower to, nor the engineering graduates, to really really, um, organize and uh, control into every nook and cranny these railroad lines. And so for that reason, that was, in my interpretation, the beginning of a strong self-reliance and regional autonomy in the railroad bureaus. Now, I'm not saying that this didn't change over time in a sense. Of course, they became um, part of the central administration. The Ministry of Railroads was uh, uh, founded in 1928, and it became a very big and powerful ministry of the state. But these railroad bureaus really kept their regional um, identity because they also knew best about economic, logistical, physical challenges of um, of these highly complex operations, and the railroad bureau system survived the the war, the transition into. Uh, the post-war period, and even today in 2019, we have the railroad bureau system. Um, There are a a few, you know, uh, a few changes in the number um, of the bureaus and sort of what line um, uh, expansion they control. But the system still exists even um, with um, high-speed with high-speed Railroads. Um, So, in that sense, uh, regional autonomy has to some extent survived. And I think we can later talk about how that is sometimes good and sometimes also can pose a problem, (laughs) Um, especially if um, there is uh, political chaos due to various uh, campaigns or during the uh, Cultural Revolution. But I want to just come back to your question why that matters. I think if I would put this in one sentence, I want to say, yes, um, institution building happened in China in terms of the railroad as an institution, but there was also quite a degree of... Um, regionalism and um, autonomy on the ground that uh, has persisted. And in so many ways, especially the first half of the 20th century, is a time where you see this young nation state becoming more regional and more central at the same time. That, that makes that does sense. make sense, yeah. More regional in, in 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 many ways, and and I think you know this. Of course, it's not just the the railroad, uh, republic the Republican nation state. In many ways, intensifies regional identity and autonomy, and yet at the same time, we see institution building and centralization in the 1920s and 30s, and then onward.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you. I mean, you just wonderfully set us up, really, in some ways, for the sort of the the arc of the book that we're um, that I think we should really turn to um, now. And you took us through, in many ways, uh, the first part of the book, as you were just sort of talking about. You know that uh, regional autonomy sort of comes in at the beginning of um, the railroad system in China when it's really, you know, getting started. Um, which takes us to chapter one of the book, Technology and Semi-Colonial Ventures. Um, So just to summarize a little bit here, so here you look at the flow of British and German railroad technology, uh, both technical and managerial expertise, and how it shaped the evolution of Chinese railroad companies in the late Qing. Um, And one thing that this chapter, I think, makes very clear is that developing railroads in China was... To simplify greatly it was very difficult, but not because not because there was opposition to it. Um, you actually make the case very clearly in this chapter that people responded very pragmatically to the railroad. The problem was, you know, structural had to do with lack of educational establishments to create the kind of expertise necessary, and of course, as you put it, there were semi-colonial tensions and absurdities. Um, But just to return to the idea of, you know, pragmatically responding to the railroads, could you just talk a little bit about this, how people responded um, to the railroads coming in?
1: Yeah, I think that is an um, uh, important theme that goes throughout the book, but uh, is especially explored in the first chapter. Um, We often read... um, about sort of the, the beginnings of Chinese railroad construction, where um, there are comments that uh, you know Chinese population didn't uh, didn't quite embrace it, and often this is informed by sort of memories of attacks on tracks and telegraph stations during the Boxer Rebellion in 1900. And of course, this in and I'm not the first person to say this. This comes out of uh, Paul Cohen's work that um, these attacks were really um, attacks not for uh, luddite uh, anti-technology reasons, but they were just attacks on symbols and representations of uh, the foreign presence in China at the time, as I show. and this is based on uh, internal rail, uh, railroad records um, from the construction of the uh, Tianjin pukou Line, um, which are housed at the Baker Library at uh, Harvard Business School. I just want to make a plug for this so that more people go ahead and use it because it's a great collection. Um, and what you see is that... Um, first of all people Chinese were not um, not against selling their land in fact um many were very clever and inflated land prices by claiming that they had a very large number of ancestral um graves on uh on their plots, and um the the whole process of uh, letting the railroad into your daily life was as I found much less controversial with Chinese being very pragmatic, very um, well. Uh, very interested in um, gaining a good um, economic uh, profit out of uh, this situation, and um, being very rational. So this goes against, you know, any kind of cultural interpretation of, tech, um, you know, techno technology phobia or um, any kind of the feng shui. Considerations of not wanting the railroad um, uh, for, uh, for fear that it would uh, disturb um, the geomantic balance. Um, certainly, I'm not, uh, I have to say that there were situations where uh, Chinese, even if they did not want um, to sell, the rail uh, their land to uh, the railroad. There were very um, well severe and uh, uh, forceful reactions from the from the railroad company. But the only uh, case where I could really find that was in um, uh, in Giaozhou, the uh, leased territory under uh, the Germans, um, which was a colonial. Uh, Arrangement. We have to remind ourselves that most of the uh, railroad, of the Chinese railroad construction, really happened in just semi colonial um, uh, conditions where you do not have a foreign military um, uh, being involved. And so what I show is that people. Especially upper class uh, Chinese were buying up land if they knew the line would go through. Uh, would in, you know inflate prices? I mean, what you see with railroad construction all over the world. The world, a lot of people made a good, you know, a lot of good money. And I also found, and this is really interesting, petitions by merchants to have railroads go through their county town um, to have a link to the main line because they absolutely realized the potential of the railroad for economic and social development. So all this is to say people were much more savvy and pragmatic than we give um, the Chinese population credit for.
0: Great. And I mean, absolutely, as you just pointed out, who doesn't want to get a good price for that? No, I, yeah. <laughs> I think that's... I'm not not you know not everything is universal, but
1: <laughs> no who, absolutely
0: <laughs> who doesn't want a good price for their land exactly. great. thank you. And the you know the prag pra- pragmatism aside, um the estab- you know going back to the establishment of railroads and how difficult it was, um, things don't get any easier in chapter two. As we move, that, as we move there, yeah. <laughs> uh, managing transitions in the early republic. So this chapter, you know, moves us beyond the nineteen eleven revolution, uh, which for the railroads at least meant the nationalization of railroads. And you point out, however, that although the goal was to establish a highly effective national rail bureaucracy, there were continued problems in doing so. Mm-hmm. Um, and you you touched on this a little bit um, right at the beginning of our conversation when you sort of laid out, what goes on in the period. Um, But to return just to this a little bit, could you talk about the desire for centralization being strong yet the railroad lines remaining autonomous? So why does that Mm -hmm. sort of um, recur here?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, after 1911, um, we see the nationalization of the Chinese railroad system. What that means is that uh, in terms of sovereignty, the railroads now are under Chinese uh, control, but they're still financed uh, uh, by foreign uh, capital, um, and China still continues to service the bonds. um, And um, yet, at the same time, Railroads are just one part of the big nation-building project that China undergoes now. Um, that means with the creation of the republic, now we see the nation-state building through um, the creation of an, a bureaucracy for infrastructure, for Ed, for education and new forms of um university and, and uh, training and and schools um a change in the u- judicial system etc cetera, etc cetera. so all of these parts that you would expect from any um from from any process um that a country has to go through uh, uh when it becomes a a modern nation. So, um, while this does not lead to um, major changes in um, the railroads, how they are managed, because a lot of these contracts that the consortia had um, uh, uh, closed was one of the main requirements was that there had to be a certain number of foreign experts, of accountants or directors in particular um, uh, situations. And so these uh, foreign um, employees actually continued way into the 1910s and even the 1920s, something that I was very surprised by, because, you know, I thought, well, after 1911, it is sort of a a much more an immediate change to um, just Chinese personnel. But um, this makes actually pretty much sense. On the one hand, you have these contractual obligations. But what we also need to know is that there was just not enough trained and uh, professionally educated engineering and technical uh, personnel around in China at that time. Because one of, what I show is that the development of the railroads happens at the same time parallel to the development of the modern education sector. So only in the mid and late 1910s do we actually have the first graduates from engineering classes at universities and technical colleges. So there is a certain lag, time lag of um, expertise. And so centralization, of course, then is much easier and uh, much more uh, successfully um, uh, carried out once you begin to have Chinese graduates from uh, from schools that now teach railroad engineering, uh, technical drawing, accounting, railroad accounting, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and that happens from around well 1918 um, onward. So uh, that is the reason why you know it takes quite a while for. Centralization really to happen because you don't you need apart from the hardware you also need the software and you know uh, this is basically happening uh, in in tandem at the same time and um, we'll probably come back to this later I would say that the contribution of Uh, the railroad to education in China is really phenomenal because on the one hand, it became a conduit for introducing and promoting technical uh, engineering education. The profession of an engineer, that was something really new. And uh, that had to um, evolve. And it also contributed to education by creating mobility that um, people could take the train, especially women, to go to school and and college in uh, larger cities like Shanghai. And railroads had kindergartens, primary schools on their railroad compounds. So um, this is a process that happens during the time. And um, because you were interested in this concept of centralization. So by the time in 1927, 1928, when we have the beginning of the Nanjing decade under uh, the Guomindang Party and Chiang Kai-shek, then we have a political unity or centralization in a sense that um, we have a much more stable political situation and the warlord um, attacks and uh, damage to tracks that has stopped. But at the same time, now we have people as graduates coming out of universities and uh, engineering schools, and they go into the Chinese um, Railroad Administration and into the railroad bureaus. So now you can actually really build and sort of solidify this system.
0: Wonderful, thank you. You, you just mentioned that, uh, you know, we're going to return to the engineers, um, and and we will in chapter five. Uh, but before we get there, um, of course, we have chapters three and four, which make up part two of the book, which is um the part is railroads in the market and social space. Now these are very, very rich chapters and you tease out points in both of these chapters that are of particular interest, I think, with those who are familiar with the history of railroads in Great Britain or in the US. Um, but in the interest of time, I'm just going to briefly sort of summarize these chapters so we can then you know carry on with the engineers. So chapter three discusses the economic role of the railroad, um, and you show that the economic impact of the railroads was actually felt most in the agricultural sector, rather, you know, unlike railroads in other parts of the world, um, as railroads in China offered rapid transportation for bulk agricultural commodities to reach new markets. And here you look in particular at how um, freight, br- freight businesses developed and operated Chapter four then looks at passenger transportation during the Republic, Um, but here too of course you're keeping the institutional focus and you look at how companies um, experienced and shaped passenger experiences and you point out that although railroads did not foster a strong sense of national belonging, again unlike in other parts of the world, um, the railroad as a business and administrative unit Did bring in new disciplines, including timekeeping and standards of personal behavior. So, one of my favorite parts of this chapter in particular is when you talk about um, textbooks published for primary students, which featured lessons on the use of clocks and watches, um, and also how to behave at railroad stations, which I think sounds like a great lesson. Great (laughs) lesson plan there. (laughs) <laughs> but continuing to talk about education, we move into part three of the book and into chapter five, professionalizing sorry, professionalizing and politicizing the railroads. And this is again another very rich chapter that covers a lot of ground. So much of this looks at engineering graduates, of which there were an increasing number, and where they ended up. And you show that because Chinese rail lines in the nineteen twenties and the nineteen thirties were not expanding, at least not, you know, not enough to to uh, absorb all these new graduates. uh, Many of these engineers ended up in the government bureaucracy. And you also touch on how engineering became a real profession during this period, one with its own set of um, precepts for governing behavior and moral um, doctrines that engineers wanted to live up to. Um, So is there, and here as well, you talk about less educated workers, so um, unskilled workers. Here too. Um, but is there anything that you really wanted to point out in this chapter for listeners? Yeah, I think, um, um,
1: especially with regard to um, education and um, expertise and knowledge, what I would like to point out that, um, is the fact that during the Republican period, during the Guomindang period, Period in particular, we see the beginning of the making of the engineering state that carries over into um, the Mao uh, uh, period after 1949. uh, In a sense, that you know, um, this new profession, the uh, increasing numbers of graduates. Who now did not need to go to Japan any longer, or um, did not need to go to study in Britain or the U.S. for their um, first degrees? A lot of them still went for, you know, uh, 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 higher degrees, or did even uh, sort of work study uh, programs to to get experience um, as apprentices in in overseas operations, but now. Um, this enormous potential of uh, of uh, human, uh, very talented and skilled human resources, became really the the backbone of um, the uh, bureaucracy um, during the Guomindang uh, period. And as you just mentioned, I think what is in- interesting is that the. The development of the job market had a lot to do with it. There was actually very little railroad building going on in the nineteen thirties because it took a while to uh repair the system from the damage uh caused by warlords and so uh by the time in uh yeah around 1930, 1931, you actually have uh, more graduates than um, free positions in the actual railroad uh, system. So what happens is that so many of these very well-educated graduates move into the ministry, and not just the ministry of railroads, but into the ministry of finance, into other bureaucratic high-level um, institutions, and of course, that in some ways strengthen strengthens the 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 level of technocratic and bureaucratic knowledge, but also is helpful in terms of building the Gorman's dung state because these are you know all white color very um well educated uh, members who are, um whose political um agendas quite you know very much align with the Guomindang and we should also say the Guomindang is very active it has special branches on on all the major railroad uh compounds and so there is a, a co-option of this technocratic elite that happens in tandem with making use of um, their uh, special knowledge and expertise, and I think this is interesting um, when we, you know, talk about uh, post-war China and sort of the rise of the in, the red engineers and the engineering state. I mean, um, Bill Kirby, Joel Andreas, and a number of other people have. Uh, written and and discussed this, and I think that here we see, through the institution of the railroad, very concrete examples. Um, And if I sort of may already make a point that pertains to the next chapter, I think this explains why um, the railroad as an institution is relatively successful in the transition from the republic to um, the socialist system, because what we see in the republic is a great emphasis and valuation of discipline, technical expertise, um, punctuality, a very strong worth as ethic, you know, expertise, uh, skills. And these were considered the values of the engineer um, of making the Republican nation state work and uh, make it stronger. And of course, after 1949, these values become socialist values to make this new socialist uh, state stronger to contribute to uh, building the People's Republic under under Mao Zedong. And so you didn't have to change very much in terms of um, the value system and the underlying um, work ethic and uh, 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 appreciation of um, of the expertise. However, I mean, all this gets thrown overboard during the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution. Never mind, but uh, certainly not in the
0: 1950s. Absolutely, things will be thrown out, but not yet. Not yet. Yes. Not earlier. Really Thank <laughs> you. It's it's uh, yeah. That was very. Pop- There's some contenders, but I I love Chapter Five. Um, be yeah. Uh, but moving to chapter six, Crisis management. Um, here you look at the impact of war on the Chinese railroad system. And you talk about railroads as economic lifelines, about how railroads served in wartime as transportation for refugees, and about how despite all the real damage done to you know railroad lines and infrastructure during this period, railroads still provided a considerable amount of mobility. And you also look here at railroad compounds that fell under Japanese management in occupied China. Um, and I was hoping that you might talk a little bit about this part of the chapter in particular, because you're drawing, um, as far as I could tell, quite a lot from testimony, from oral history interviews, to look at shop floor hierarchies, hiring practices, and you know, general social dynamics under Japanese management, which I found fascinating. And we haven't talked about the sources that you use in this book. Um, and there are you know many different kinds. This is not you already made a plug for um, one collection. So you you know you draw on archival sources, you're drawing on um, all kinds of different um, pieces, textbooks we've already touched on a little bit. And oral history does come into play in uh, in chapter seven and eight as well but it sort of makes its real appearance here. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about those interviews and what they revealed to you about Japanese railroad management.
1: Yeah, thank you. This is actually, I love talking about oh, this great. because that was an exciting part of uh, the research. So um, I was really uh, intent on uh, finding some former uh railroad workers uh, to find out um, yeah what life was really uh, like for them during the war and of course when I did these interviews um, I mean the gentlemen I interviewed were all in their late 70s early and mid 80s so we are talking about you know uh, a time where they could uh, go back in their memories to, being apprentices um, in the late 30s and uh, 40s under the Japanese, um, who occupied um, the Tianjin puko line, that was a really important line for them because it kept the uh, goods and army transports from Shanghai up into the north. Um, kept kept those uh, transportation uh going it was very important for the war effort and um it took a while to get uh permission to do these interviews i one thing that I should say i point this out in the book so it is not easy to uh, do work with um uh, on railroads in China because railroads and the ministry of railroads today, after 1949, uh, are considered part of the uh, national defense. And that, of course, um, limits so much. So um, railroad bureaus would not let you see their archives. And believe me, I've worked on this. I've even given talks and had party secretary of the uh, Shandong Academy of Social Sciences put in a good word for me, but... Um, couldn't get in and so could, uh, couldn't, uh, Chinese colleagues. So that's pretty much off, you know, off limits. Um, finally, we were, you know, I was able to, to do these interviews. And I think what this, these interviews, um, as well as the one for more sort of post, um, post war issues, uh, showed me is the enormous, um, pride and professional, uh, strong professional identity of railroad workers, um, the pride in their work, uh, in what the railroad stands for as a, a very well-organized and strong institution. I, I saw that um, uh, through all these interviews. And again, that's not surprising. That's something that you would see in other railroad contexts, national railroad contexts as well. Um, but um, it was very funny. Um, of course, uh, at the end of one of the the interview sessions, the oldest gentleman got up and said, "Well, so now we've you know we've we've talked about all you know the history. What about our pensions? You know, good we? <laughs> and um, you know the the officials attending the session looked very uncomfortable and said, well, tea break, (laughs) tea break, you know. Any opportunity. um, Exactly, exactly. Which, um, you know, is is also an interesting indicator that uh, um, the railroad was, after the Bank of China, the most prestigious and most sought-after place to work because you had... um, good work conditions, very good comparatively, social services. Also, your food supply was uh, in the cities um, often better during hard times because of, uh, uh, of the transportation connection. And you got, you were entitled to free tickets. And um, I think this kind of um, uh, higher status and recognition that has decreased sort of over time, um, and certainly now there is more of a marketplace, and especially sort of railroad, you know workers in in uh, work units. Um, in the in the you know early two thousands, they were um, certainly not very happy with their you know um, pension payments and. Um, reorganization plans, so that you know, offered me also a, a, a little glimpse into more contemporary developments.
0: That's fascinating, and yeah, I I hope that tea break went well for him.
1: That particular
0: <laughs> gentleman.
1: Well, the good thing is, you know, these were all mm-hmm. heroes and had, you know, uh, uh, heroes in a sense that they first of all, they were very old and uh, respected and they had sort of a lot of chutzpah, you know, we don't care. We, we want to say what we want to say. And so uh,
0: I can assure everybody, nobody got into it. Amazing. Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, so moving, you know, moving into more contemporary issues into the final section of the book, chapter seven and eight um, here, and we, you sort of flagged these chapters um, right at the beginning of our conversation. Um, because you know, this is where we sort of see things really change and some things really stay the same, if you like. Uh, so Chapter 7, Post-War Reorganization and Expansion, looks at the immediate changes that came in after 1949. And Chapter 8, Permanent Revolution and Continuous Reform, Here Come the Changes, looks first at how the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution forced changes on China's railroads And then it turns uh, to look at the period of reform following uh, Mao's death in 1976. Now, we're coming to the end of our conversation here. So I wonder if we could sort of take on these chapters as a whole, Um, Because both of these chapters touch on the continuation of first, you know, pre-war and then pre-PRC aspect of railroad management, operation, and ideology. So you've actually touched on this a little bit. Um, So, for example, in terms of ideology, you see, you know, values like discipline and punctuality and timekeeping switch from being, you know, Republican, Western, modernity markers to being, you know, the goals of revolutionary socialism um and as you mentioned right at the beginning of our conversation that you know things some things stay the same for better or for worse so i wonder if you could talk a little bit about this what you know what made it um for better or for worse into um this period
1: yeah so i think in terms of continuation um after 40 after 1949 and um the founding of the People's Republic. So, uh, what we see is sort of a regrouping and re-centralization of um, the railroad bureaus under a uh, under the railroad administration, the Ministry of uh, uh, Railroads. And I think uh, that takes a bit of time because you have to. We have to remember um, it means integrating Manchuria which was before on the um, uh, Japanese uh, control uh, into the system. Then, you know, Taiwan was in during the civil war. Now it's out again (laughs) from uh, the network. So that happens along with um, a new uh, move, and that is to militarize the construction arm. Of uh, the, the railroad network and we have this um, uh, introduction of the Chadow being the railroad construction workers who are part of the PLA, the People's Liberation Army and who are now um, sent to construct uh, the new lines that begin to being built in. Central China, in the northwest, in the south, um, because this is now um, the time where we see the Chinese, uh, the P- the Chinese New Socialist State, the PRC, pushing railroad construction very uh, concisely with a lot of manpower, in particular. And um, of course, mobilizing this new unit um, uh, in the army is means that you have full control, and it is it it's easier to organize. And um, of course, with uh, these army workers and engineers, you um, also have. Uh, a very disciplined and very dedicated workforce. I mean, um, you mentioned before that railroad construction was difficult. Well, it becomes really difficult in um, very unhospitable terrain in, um, in the south and southwest. And um, this is the time when we have numerous um, uh, construction workers slash uh, soldiers dying in accidents, high altitude, mudslides, you know, explosion accidents, et cetera, et cetera. But it is for uh, bringing the state now in every nook and cranny of the Chinese territory. And um, this is a process that uh, continues pretty much from um, the 1950s onward. Um, Throughout, well, we see it with um, the Tibetan railroad sort of bringing this pretty much full circle uh, by um, creating the link to um, the most western um, provinces. And of course, there are great disruptions, great leap forward, cultural revolution. Um, I should say that um, one of my major arguments, and this also goes to the point of sources, it's very difficult to get sources generated by the railroad um, administration or the bureaus on the chaos and um, negative impact of these campaigns. But what you get, can get, if you know where to look, is um, accident statistics. And I make um, a point of looking and I show how, especially during the Great Leap Forward and during the Cultural Revolution, accident statistics spike because the system is now not run by experts, but by uh, political appointees. And By the fact that um, now the railroads do not run under railroad time but under political time Mm -hmm. so to speak
0: yeah I thought that was a really impactful part of this chapter of chapter eight Uh, yeah chapter eight Um, Mm -hmm. when you when you talk about how you know what does what what does um, riding the railroad look like under red engineers well it looks very chaotic Mm -hmm. and you know Mm -hmm. accidents accidents spike trains crashing into each other all of that that was a yeah, one of I think a very, um, I guess as you just uh, sort of laid it out with regards to um, the sources that you could could and couldn't access, a very um, a, a great way to sort of access that information. Mm-hmm. You know about what rail rail looked rail, like during that, this period. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Um, yeah, please. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, I mean. There is so much in these chapters and in the rest of the book as the whole, as you know I, uh, as a whole that we just haven't been able to touch on here. Um, so for any listeners who are interested in anything at all that we've covered, and this book does really cover a lot, um, I would encourage them to seek it out. Um, you will be rewarded. Um, but now that you're finished with this book, Elizabeth, what mm-hmm. are you working on next? What is inspiring you now?
1: Well, so currently I have uh, two projects. Um, so one is um, I'm, uh, I I want to write a history of pawn shops and pawnbroking uh, as uh, as a, a source of informal finance from sort of uh, the eighteenth century to the present. And um, well, no surprise here. I think that one of the reasons why I find this an interesting topic is that um, we see pawnbroking and, and pawn shops not only as a very important um, practice and institution of informal t- uh, finance in China, but also um, pawn shops disappeared. After 1945 and 49, because they were capitalist um, institutions, but they've come back um, in a slightly different and uh, sort of more uh, uh, business like form in a sense that um, they provide uh, credit for small and medium enterprises. And so I'm just interested in um, the question why and how these institutions continue and why they never turned into banks like uh, in in some European uh, cases. And my other project is I would like, uh, based on a um, collection of uh, letters, diary entries and photographs of an American salesman for British-American tobacco in china in the 1920s i would like to write a sort of more popular small history of what it was like to do business in china as a foreigner in the 1920s in the countryside
0: oh wow (laughs) they, they both sound like amazing projects the second in particular i can see of of being a real joy to read you know Pawn shops aside, um, (laughs) pawn shops aside, pawn shops aside. um, uh, Again, they both sound like amazing projects, and I look forward to hearing and reading more about them in the future. Thank you again, Elizabeth, for writing a book that was such a pleasure to read and such a pleasure to talk about.
1: Well, thank you, Sarah, for you know your interest and also for your great questions. It has been a pleasure. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks.